I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern Lath. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Judith King Kalnick of the United Nations International School. Dr. King Kalnick has been at UNIS since 1994 as a teacher of anthropology, theory of knowledge and history, head of the humanities department, president of the staff association, and a UNIS parent. This year, she became the school's first director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Judith, what is the United Nations International School? What's its purpose and whom does it serve? We are an independent school in New York City. We, our main campus is in Manhattan and we have a campus in Queens. In Manhattan, we're pre-K to 12 and in Queens, we're K to 8. And about 50% of our students are a little bit more than 50% are children of, of UN staff. And the others are a combination of other international families in the New York area or families in the New York area that want their children to have an international education. And our mission is directly aligned with um, the mission, the goals of the United Nations. You've taught social and cultural anthropology at UNIS for many years. How do you encourage students to view different cultures and value systems without condescension? I think I'm really lucky to teach anthropology in general and even luckier to teach it at UNIS because I think our students are almost, by virtue of the lives that they live, natural anthropologists. Uh, many students are, but as in their lives, they cross borders and boundaries so frequently and have so many intersecting identities that they're very aware of because they've often lived in other countries, other cultures. And one of the things is part of the ethos of the school is that um, our job is not to acculturate students to become American citizens, it's to be global citizens. So it weaves in very nicely with our, our raison d'etre and, and it's not condescending in that way because it's just kind of part of who we are. Um, our normal language. And even I find the wonderful thing about the course that I teach is it gives these kids language for many things that they know and that they experience that they may not have been able to articulate otherwise. I think it's the same for other kids in other schools in many ways, except that because we are an international school and we strive to create global citizens, it's just part of what we do and who we are. And it lends itself very well to that. You've also taught history. Has the history curriculum become less white and European centered over the years that you've been there? Yes and no, in different grades, in different years. I've taught history in seventh and eighth grade and I've taught history in ninth and 10th grade. And I think when I first arrived, it was much more Eurocentric than it is now. In the middle school, in the high school, not quite as much, but still to a large degree. For example, when I began teaching ninth grade history, I was really excited because they already taught the Haitian Revolution and Latin American revolutions 
in the same year that they were teaching the French Revolution, the American Revolution. So it was sort of Atlantic world revolutions. And in the middle school, they looked at so many different societies, the Mongol Empire, the Mughal Empire, ancient India, all sorts of other civilizations. Of course, they studied the Renaissance also, um, medieval Europe as well. So they had that too, but they looked at other, other societies at different places and times. But, but again, the curriculum has changed a lot over the years. So different times, it's been more or less broad or more or less narrow. In an interview on the Eunice podcast, Universus, you said that you've tried to push back during your tenure at Eunice. What have you pushed back against and what have been the results? Well, that's one thing in terms of the way we frame things. One example is in 10th grade history, the unit was, it was called European Imperialism and Decolonization. And I, and a couple of others, but especially me, pushed back and said, rather than decolonization, I think they're independence movements. We just talk about decolonization. It takes away the agency of the people that were colonized and sort of eclipses the long histories that they had before they were colonized by Europe. In those cases, they were, that was specifically looking at Africa and Asia. So that's one way I've pushed back. And even when I teach, um, when I taught, I don't teach it anymore, European history, I weave in Africa, I weave in the Middle East, I weave in other places. For example, at one point, my students were looking at figures, some mythological and some historical figures like Richard the Lionhearted in England. And I said, well, are there lions in England? No. Well, where do those images come from? And, you know, we looked at coins, pictures of coins, gold coins with a lion on it. I said, well, where does the gold come from? And they remembered back that they had studied the empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai and remembered the importance of gold in those places and knowing that lions are not, not only not indigenous to England, but you don't see them wandering around the streets <laughs> of England. So making connections and reminding students of trade and also because we have a global focus, one of the things I, I constantly stress is that this notion of globalization is not new. We've had globalization of different sorts for millennia, thousands of years. And now it's different, of course, because the speed and the rapidity and the breadth of it is so much faster and stronger and forceful. But, you know, the Colombian exchange, globalization is not a new thing. So those are the ways I push back. And when I say push back, sometimes I'm pushing back against texts. Sometimes I'm pushing back against administrative structures, just different things, because we really stress the development of critical thinking. And I think, um, when my students see me questioning things like that, it, it develops that in them as well. And I, and I tell them to push back against me as well. And they do, <laughs> they do. What are your priorities as Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion? 
Wow. I have been thinking a lot about that. One of the first things now is I am in the process of establishing, creating structures, structures and policies. I am in the process right now of writing job descriptions for coordinators. So I have people in place that can help me. Many hands makes light work and this is a huge job. Establishing committees, identifying people that I can tap into that they can work with me. So that's one of my real priorities. But at the same time I'm doing that, there's the expectation that things are being done. So I'm doing things at the same time. Um, having meetings, getting student groups active, involved in training, all sorts of training from anti-bias, anti-racism training, diversifying the curriculum, restorative circles. So there's those pieces, sort of the structure, the culture, and other priorities is increasing representation of underrepresented groups, especially people of African descent in the student body, as well as the faculty body. For our listeners, would you go over what a restorative circle is? Yeah, and it's not just in terms of DEI work. And and in our junior school, the elementary school kids, it's very much a part of it where they have a peace table, you know, that sort of trains kids, teaches kids how to work through problems and communicate and to come together sort of like reconciliation in a way. So in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, my philosophy is that when there's a transgression, of course there are consequences, but some people look to, what are you doing? What happens if somebody does this? You have to have a zero tolerance policy. This is what I hear a lot. And yes, there are consequences, but I I really believe that as a school also, we're an educational institution, we need to restore our community when there are some transgressions. It's a learning opportunity for whoever who has done the wronging for them to learn and for the person who has been wronged to feel that they have been seen, that we recognize what happened and that they are able to go forward and that the peoples or sometimes they're not people, sometimes they're structures, whatever, that there's some kind of mending. Um, this is really hard. It's, it's not easy. I think we live in a society that is often focused on punishment. And yes, I believe there should be punishment at some times. There should be discipline for certain things. But I think punishment is easy to measure, you know, but restoration is harder. So I think it's something that's really, really important. But that's my philosophy in general. And again, sometimes that's an area I have to push back because I, you know, people don't always want to hear that. Sure. Speaking of that and expanding from that, ethical issues come up in schools all the time. You know, teachers and administrators are always having to deal with these situations where usually there's there's no right answer or any answer is going to have negative as well as hopefully some positive outcomes. Um, how do you, how do you encourage a culture where people are explicitly thinking about education in an ethical way so that when teachers 
have these kind of issues arise that there's a community to, to help frame the answers. Is this something, we've been looking at this a lot. Um, we had an interview with Mira Levinson who has a website called Justice in Schools where she's deliberately trying to help schools and teachers deal with these kind of questions so that it's not just having to deal with them each time they come up sort of from scratch. Is this anything that, that you've been involved in and that you have thoughts on? I have a lot of thoughts on it and I haven't been involved in it formally. And it's exactly the kind of thing that we're looking to do more of. It happens in places and spaces. Some people individually sort of incorporated into the practice. But one of the things that I would very much like to do in this work in diversity, equity, inclusion now in, in this new position is to make it broader, to get more people trained in it. And it's, it's really transformative. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do in DEI work. We're really trying to transform the culture, not just of school, but we're trying to revolutionize the world. <laughs> And you're in a good place to do it since it's a worldwide school. That's right. Um, you've spoken about the student DEI committee. What's that committee doing? Those kids are amazing. They started, well, we have a couple different groups, student groups. The main group is the Equity and Inclusion Board, and they sort of started up on their own over the summer in the wake of all of the George Floyd protests, Breonna Taylor protests, and they were spurred on by a group of alumni as well. And they have been involved in writing curriculum. They're working with our curriculum specialist and their faculty advisor in how to deliver modules to other students in things from microaggressions to LGBTQ things, workshops on pronouns. Um, they just came back from the National Association for Independent Schools Student Diversity Leadership Conference. We had a group that went who, I, I just got an email yesterday from the parent of one of them who said that her daughter was completely amazed and said it was the best experience she ever had and couldn't wait to share. So they're learning how to set up affinity groups they are holding assemblies. They had the school's first voter education and uh, registration drive. And they created a couple of videos for that and held assemblies. So they're doing so much. They're doing so much that I actually worry about them because I see they send emails and I look at the times of their emails and I'm thinking, <laughs> why are they sending emails at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night? They're 16 years old, um, you know. So yeah, I, I kind of, I'm a little protective of them because I want to make sure one, they don't burn out and two, that they don't neglect their academics, but they're phenomenal. They're phenomenal. And I think that generation is, I was gonna write some of them in on the ballot in November. Um, <laughs> they're, they're so good. You know, what you're mentioning about students writing curriculum and when we talked earlier, you talked about the idea of recognizing that there are things that the students know in areas that the faculty don't. 
and so that you can have a, a truly interactive kind of uh, exchange. It seems to me that that's something that it would be really interesting for a lot of schools to sort of, you know, try to follow your model because it sort of breaks through that, that wall between teachers and students. And also, I don't know if this is happening in terms of parents as well, but could you talk a little bit about how they've done that? And uh, also, what kind of responses are they getting from faculty? Since obviously some of these areas might be things that teachers would traditionally think of as, you know, their turf. I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's, it's hard for the adults to be told things by the youth. One thing, what we have them doing now is working with not large groups of faculty at a time, but with a couple of people at a time. So we have, for example, one teacher who coordinates the other mentors or homerooms or advisory groups, but it's called different things in different schools over time, but where they have different sessions. So that teacher who coordinates and sets that curriculum is actually working with the students to help set the curriculum. And those students provide three services to them. One is they give them consultations where they look at the different modules that are gonna be used and they, based on their experience with those modules in years past, they give feedback. This worked, this didn't work, why we like this, how you should change this, et cetera, et cetera. So they give one consultation. The other service they give is they provide the training themselves. And that's where, like I said, they're working with the curriculum specialist and their faculty advisor to develop them and get trained in how to deliver the sessions to the other students. And when they're doing that, the teachers are in the room and the teachers are sort of not quite students in the process, but they get exposed to that too. And the third service that they're providing is where some of their modules are sort of prepackaged and videotaped or something. So then they can just give those to the teachers that the teachers can use. So it works well, or it's so far it's working well because it's, it's, some parts are farther along than others. And um, yeah, again, some teachers love hearing from the students. And again, sometimes it's a little intimidating. You know, what are these kids gonna tell me? Uh, and it's learning ex experience for the students because the students don't fully understand, you know, just what teaching is about sometimes. Some students think, oh, you just hand the teacher a lesson and they just deliver it and they, they right that was that was our response too we laughed <laughs> one student actually said that and that's when we said okay we we need to work with them to help develop this so it and again it takes time and a lot of people want things done very quickly and i'm always saying patience this is a process it's not a quick fix not a one-time, not a one-offer. When you spoke to middle school students on UN Day this year, celebrating, I think, the 75th anniversary of the UN, a student asked about the assassination of the teacher in France because he talked about the picture of the Prophet Muhammad, and you didn't get a chance to answer it. How would the school approach an issue like that? Yeah, and we have a lot of those conversations because 
every time there's an event anywhere in the world, we have students and faculty and staff who are directly impacted by it, often on many different perspectives, different sides. So um, we, we talk a lot and, and we realize there may not be any answers. There may not be closure. There's not necessarily a right answer, but we find ways to, first of all, be informed drawing on not only what we've studied, but also on kids and teachers' own background and lived experience. And, you know, really inform and look at things from different perspectives. So a lot of times, for example, we'll take a situation like that in current events and then look at it, how it's reported from different media sources. Um, also look at an incident like that in different places and times. That was a really good example because our students really are keenly aware that when we look at the Muslim world, and I say that in quotes, that it's huge, it's wide, incredibly diverse. And they can talk quite readily about the different manifestations, different versions, different interpretations and different restrictions and how different people practice and observe and don't. And how different groups can and have coexisted or not in different times of place. For example, in the middle school, our students study historically um, the birth of Islam and the Muslim empire and its growth. And so they tend to be really informed and understand things in a more nuanced way than a group of people maybe that doesn't know anything about historically, geographically, politically, let alone religiously about Islam and finding common ground. What are the limits? I have one student who is now in 12th grade and she is writing her, it's called an extended essay. It's part of the International Baccalaureate and it's a longer piece of research, a 4,000 word essay. And she is looking at female genital mutilation within the framework of universal human rights versus cultural relativism. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights coming straight from the UN, but then this anthropological notion of cultural relativism, how do you reconcile these two seemingly contradictory conceptual frameworks and looking at this particular example, this particular case. So we grapple with these things all the time. And again, we don't have answers. We have outrage for things like people being massacred and killed um, and we express outrage. And we not, and I say, and instead of, but, and, we also realize that we may not always agree, but how then can we have a conversation? And as long as we keep talking, we, we usually say, as long as we can keep talking, we're okay. You know, thinking about what you're saying, which sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds like what one would hope to have happen in every school, but unfortunately doesn't a lot of times. And it seems as though it would require a very thoughtful and nuanced and collaborative teaching process. Is that something that 
your staff meetings deal with a lot? I mean, do people, how, how do you help ensure that all of your teachers understand and fit well within the culture of the school, the pedagogical structure of the school? And I'm thinking of this primarily, again, in terms of, for our listeners, many of whom are going to be in a whole variety of schools, how can schools get to the place that you're either at or that you're continuing to work on getting to be at? Yeah, we're continuing to to do this. It never stops. And sometimes we do much better than other times, definitely. And, and it varies. It varies by grade level and by department. Since I'm in, I work mostly in the humanities department or social sciences, as most people call it. One of the things in the high school, just physically how we're located, we have a big room and we are, all have our desks in there and we have a, a big yellow table in the middle. And we often come together to that yellow table and sort it's almost like our round table, <laughs> you know? And we hash things out and we, we oh, we have some of the most uh, lively arguments about, for example, what to include or not to include in the curriculum. We can never agree. And then we agree. And then we have a conversation two weeks later and we look at what we, decide and we say oh how could we have decided that you know we what were we thinking and then we meet again two weeks later and we decide something else and meanwhile we're teaching and we're talking to each other um so it's a, it's a very so the curriculum is alive and you know one of the things i find we have to be we're just really constantly in conversation and changing and altering things and then something happens in the world and we say, oh, we can't do this anymore. We have to do that. But what about, that's not what we're supposed to teach. We're supposed to be doing this unit right now. You know, I think sometimes teachers, we get sort of fixated on what we're supposed to teach at what time. And, you know, even if there's a fire drill, oh my gosh, that ruined everything. Now I'm off schedule. <laughs> and yeah, and it's really so much about, you know, fighting that tendency that many of us have and, responding to each other and to our students. And again, anytime anything, something happens in the world, we're, we're affected. I remember years ago, there was a, a kidnapping in, in Peru and I was teaching in middle school then and I had two students in Peru who were from Peru. The two students I had, one of them's aunt and the other one's uncle were being held we're, we're being held by the kidnapping at the same time. And I thought, what, what is the likelihood of that? You know, I only have two students from Peru and they both have somebody in their family. Now, each of those people, they were not necessarily um, always on the same side of the issue, but this issue just hit them and therefore us very personally. So we kind of had to pause because that wasn't in our curriculum, but it was in the news and they were in the class. So we had to stop and say, what's going on? What does this mean? In that same Muende presentation that John mentioned, you discussed microaggressions, which you described as death by a thousand cuts. How do you urge students to deal with microaggressions, especially when they are more often than not unintentional? 
Yeah, we're working on that. We're working on that. Students and faculty and administrators, we are all working on that. It's a big chunk of work. And for people who experience them, they understand them much more. For people who don't experience them, sometimes they, they don't get it. So we all have different work. Um, yeah, the analogy of death by a thousand cuts and another analogy I heard is uh, like a mosquito bite. And if you just have one mosquito bite, that's just annoying. But if you're bit by many mosquitoes nonstop all day long, it's horrible. So one thing is giving people who experience them the tools to respond, reminding them not to assume malintent, first of all, but ways to respond that helps highlight, educate the person who sort of did them. And then for the people who are on the delivering end, sensitivity, one, to what it feels like, because sometimes you don't know something until you feel it yourself. Mm -hmm. And then understanding from the other perspective. For example, I have a colleague who is African-American, her husband is white and they have kids and her kids are very, very light and she's very, very brown. And she said, I'm so tired when I go out, people say, you know, oh, are those your kids? And so one thing I said, I said, why don't you just tell them, no, I just found them. You know, I thought they needed walking. So I thought I'd walk them, you know, saying something so ridiculous that it makes a person one laugh. Humor is often good because that, you know, engages people, but also it shows them, you know, that was really ridiculous question. That was, there's a lot of assumptions in there was offensive in some ways and why, you know, just to sort of dig in there. So, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be humor, but that's, that's one way. And it's, it's disarming in a non-destructive way. Yeah. Some students at Eunice have engaged in ethnographic studies at the school. What kind of projects have they taken on and what did they learn? Oh man, this, and this is my thing. I, I, I love this, the work they're doing. I have so many things. I had some big, really bold research, as I mentioned, um, my student from some years ago who was from Iran and she went to Iran in, it was around 2011, 12, 10, 11, 12, 13, I can't remember, in there, at a time when it was very dangerous to be doing research. And she researched veiling, looking at how veiling was sometime, meant many different things to different people in a way that an outsider probably couldn't have understood or perceived how sometimes it was an act of rebellion, sometimes it was an act of complicity. Um, she looked at it through a feminist theory lens, just phenomenal research. I have a student who did ethnographic study in a classroom, in a fifth grade classroom, and focused on gender differences in the ways that the students interacted and the way the teacher responded, especially in terms of discipline. And she found a big difference. 
Um, I've had students also do ethnographic work in classrooms in with the little ones, with the junior school, or, or not in the classroom, in and about the school, in the school lobby and in the playground. And again, a lot, and a lot of my students are very interested in, in gender studies and looking at how children are very genderized early on, the, looking at material culture, colors that of their clothes and their school bags and things like that. So sometimes they do their studies looking at material culture. Sometimes um, they focus on symbolism. Those are just a few off the top of my head. But every year they do ethnographic studies. So this year I have a group of 22 anthropology students who are just finishing writing up their, their ethnographic work, their, their limited field work. Um, oh, you know what? Really, really fascinating. I had two that did this year. They're looking at rituals and they looked at the... 7 p.m. clapping during COVID and how looking at the symbolism of the ritual and they looked at it through the lens of um, Victor Turner's notion of, of how, you know, collectivism and how, how we create these rituals to reinforce com community ties. So they did a lot of participant observation and they followed up with interview or surveys to collect data because they have to use at least two different research methods. That was really fascinating. Those I'm looking forward. They're, they're almost finished. They should be turning them into me yesterday, but they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is different this year because of COVID. These poor kids, you know. Well, is there anything we haven't discussed that deals with the UN International School and ethics that you'd like to touch on? Oh boy, I can tell you a story about my children when they went there, about one of my sons. It was very interesting. And my sons are both grown now. They're, um, how old are they? Uh, it changes every year. I can't get <laughs> um, when that happens. I know. Uh, they're 32 and 29, right? So my older son, when he was in 10th grade, came to me and told me he was going to fast for Ramadan. Now, we are not Muslim. We're actually very, a very secular family. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I've been thinking about it. It's a time, you know, when you're supposed to think about those who have less than you. You're supposed a time of, of reflection. And time, you know, he told me all, the, all of the reasons that, you know, you're supposed to fast. And I said, okay, fine. So he got up every morning before dawn and fixed his food and he went all day and he did that throughout high school and my colleagues who are Muslim the adults said to me oh you're so lucky you know we Muslim mothers we pray our sons are going to fast like and your son is doing it on his own you don't have to get after him and and I actually I thought that was quite impressive and then when he went away to college during Ramadan I said are you fasting he said no I said why not he said well I don't have a community here like I did there. Mm. It, it doesn't have the same meaning. So it was interesting. And it wasn't like I wanted him to continue doing it forever. But the way that being in that environment had kind of made him this thoughtful person in a very authentic way. 
that as a mother, I, I really like that. And then another thing that one of the best compliments my younger son ever gave me when he was in middle school and they were studying, they were, had been studying India and China and Hinduism and Buddhism. And he said to me, mom, are you a Buddhist? And I said, no, why? And he said, well, it's because you're always trying to do the right thing. Wow. <laughs> and, and I, to me, that didn't say so much about me, although, of course, I love that as a mother. That, oh, my child says I'm doing the right thing. But that he was, again, had his eyes and his ears open to other ways of being and doing and looking at them in our lives. So, yeah. And I think they both got that from their time at the school. And I am, you know, I have been very critical of the school over the years, but obviously I love it because I've stayed there. But I do say, and I thought of taking my sons out of the school at different points in time. But my husband and I made the decision to keep them there. And I, I really do like the people they have become as adults. And I, I do credit the school for a big part of that, that just, not just what happens in the class, but outside of the class, those connections with the people. And those things are, are harder to, you know, they happen organically. They're harder to orchestrate. Some of them are because of extracurricular activities where they connect with people. But I think it's sort of the spirit that continued beyond the classroom for them. Thank you so much, Dr. Judith King Kalnick of the United Nations International School. Thank you. I really enjoyed this talk. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or a review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. <laughs>